0: From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Would you join me in our call to worship, printed in your order for service. Call on the name of God. And give thanks. Make known God's deeds among the people. Sing and tell of God's wonderful works. Let those who see God rejoice in their hearts. Friends, let us
1: worship God. Our scripture comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Listen to God's work to you and to me. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: And let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning. Uh, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We've spent the past two weeks in the ninth chapter of Luke, really just considering seven verses in that particular text and the implications that this brief little passage has on the whole of Christian discipleship. In the first week, we really did a 30,000-foot view of this road that Jesus calls us to walk. The Gospel of Luke has a pivot in the telling of the narrative of Jesus Christ where Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. And we said that that road that he walks, that road to Jerusalem, is a road to suffering. It's a road to the brokenhearted. It's a road to the poor and to the oppressed. If we're going to follow Jesus, we follow him to those places. Oh, the places you'll go, oh Christian, you'll go to the poor. You'll go to the brokenhearted. You'll go to the suffering. You'll go to the oppressed. Last week, we took a deep dive into Jesus's encounter in this text with the first would-be disciple. We really concentrated on one line in the ninth chapter, this saying that Jesus offers, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We asked uh, two questions of this text. What are the implications on our faith, on discipleship, if we take this text literally? And what are the implications it has if we read it more spiritually or mystically? And we had two takeaways then. First, we said if we read it literally, we will discover that Jesus is saying that he is homeless that he has no place literally to lay his head. We made the translation for our faith today. If Jesus was homeless, if he understands the plight of the homeless person, then we who bear his name need to be concerned about their plight as well. Then we need to become a friend and an advocate for them. Christian discipleship requires such friendship. It requires such a voice. Second, we name the fact that following Jesus, if you read this in a more mystical or spiritual way, that following Jesus will make you tired. It's hard work. It's a restless endeavor. It'll make you tired to live like Jesus. And so that's why we have to be brave and courageous and seek the Spirit's strength so we may keep on keeping on in this journey of faith. We hit this third and final week in this short sermon series, taking a closer look at the encounter Jesus has with these two other would-be disciples Luke describes for us. And we want to see once again what implications these encounters have on what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to say that I'm a Christian in the 21st century. Have you ever worked with a colleague, or maybe you have a friend or a family member, someone that you know, or maybe I'm going to describe you in just a minute, who thinks that everything is urgent? Do you know anybody like that? Who thinks everything is urgent? These are folks who typically believe that their work or their project or their issue or their concern is more important than anything else on the face of the earth. Whatever it is that faces them not only needs their attention, but it also needs your attention as well. Their questions, their dilemma, their situation is not only important to them, but they think it should be important to you and that you should care about it with the same passion and fervor and urgency as they do. Now, people who think or treat everything as if it is urgent have a really difficult time prioritizing life. They have a hard time keeping perspective on what really needs their attention and what they simply can let go of or postpone for another time. A few months ago, Harvard Business Review published an article by Liz Kislick entitled, How to Manage Someone Who Thinks Everything is Urgent. She said this, We've all been in situations in which we couldn't wait For a slow-moving or overly cautious person or employee to take action. But at the other extreme, some people have such a deep need to get things resolved that they move too quickly or too intensely and they actually make a mess. Employees who are driven by excessive urgency often act like they're scratching an itch rather than making intentional efforts to accomplish and grow as much as they can, either for themselves or for their organization. Once they realize that additional reflection and deliberation can generate significantly better results, they can learn to corral their urgency in service of being a better leader and achieving better performance. What Kislik is arguing here is that self and organizational awareness is the key in directing the employee who thinks everything is urgent. And so she suggests four behaviors or four habits that you can invest uh, in Uh, that help these types of folks. She says, first, help them realize their impact on others. Second, encourage them to take account and stock of the consequences of their actions when they constantly act with urgency. Third, team them up with patient, long-term thinkers. And finally, coach them to separate their feeling of urgency from what actually needs to be done. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the gospel accounts, sometimes when I read the story of Jesus, let me say oftentimes when I read the story of Jesus, I sometimes wish a similar strategy could be applied to him. I wish somebody would write an article that had the heading How to Manage the Son of God When He Thinks Everything is Urgent. You know, for him, everything he speaks of, everything he enacts in Luke 9 seems to be critical. It seems to be pressing. Everything is urgent to this Jesus guy. Jesus thinks that what is important to him should be important to me. Jesus thinks that the project called the kingdom of God is the most important project I could ever be a part of. Jesus thinks that what gets his attention should get my attention. You read the Gospels, you read a text like Luke 9, and you can't miss this sense of urgency, can you? Surrounding this call of Christ. And this urgency is on full display in this second encounter with this would be disciple. Getting right into it, what is this second man asking after Jesus invites him to a life of faith? What is he asking? He's simply asking what I think a lot of us ask, maybe we even pray for, time. He's asking for time. And he's not asking for time in some self-centered way. He's not looking to take a vacation. He's not looking for time to give himself a little self-care. He's asking for time to fulfill a religious obligation. Jesus said to him, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And then Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. What Jesus has for this man is urgent. There is no time, sir. There's no time for anything else, even the fulfillment of these religious obligations. And what we'll discover as we dig a little deeper into this text is that Jesus' words are both sharp and comedic. You see, in first century Judaism, there was something called secondary burial. When a person died, it was customary that at the time of their death, they would be buried as soon as possible. When the person died in the first century, as close to that time of death would be when you would want to entomb them. And when they were buried, they weren't buried in the ground. They they were buried mostly in caves, and those caves were family plots, basically family tombs. And so, once they were buried in that tomb, once they were placed in that tomb, a week of mourning would commence, and the family would be together in a home and mourn for that loved one. In first-century Judaism, it was also customary to wait about a year and to move the bones, to go back into the tomb, to move the bones of the deceased into a stone chest that contained other bones from the family. Or, if they didn't have a stone chest, in these tombs they would be almost lined with cut-out shelves etched in the, the rock itself, and they would place the bones and mix them together, all of these families, or this family rather, uh, the bones mixed And this was the practice of secondary burial. As scholar Brian McCann notes, this practice gives us a deeper meaning to the biblical idiom to be gathered to one's people or to be gathered to one's fathers when talking about death. It's possible that when this man asks to bury his father, he's not talking about his father's immediate death. So often we think about that. We think, oh, Jesus is so callous. The guy's dad just died. He's asking him, hey, give me some time to bury him. This Jesus doesn't have a lot of compassion. The reality is the guy wouldn't have been there if his father had just died and he wasn't buried. Because as soon as he died, he would be buried. What is more, if he had just died and he was buried, he wouldn't be out in public. He'd be sharing in the time of mourning with his family and his friends. And so when Jesus responds to him, it makes a lot more sense in this context. If it's about a secondary burial, if there's a few more months he has to wait before he shifts the bones around, puts them in the chest, or puts them up along the wall. And that's why Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Here's the comedy of it. He's basically saying, hey, let those bones be buried by those other bones. You don't need to attend to that. They're more pressing matters. From dust you have come and to dust you shall return. They're not going anywhere, but you are. They're dead, but you're not. And I've got a job for you to do to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here that those of us who struggle with Jesus' sense of urgency would like that Harvest Harvard rather business review on managing Jesus. Jesus, I wish you would take account of the consequences of your actions. Jesus, I, I, I wish you would know and honor the fact that I have these obligations. Jesus, you need to be patient with me and think more long-term. You know, I have plenty of time to develop faith. I have plenty of time to trust in you. I have plenty of time to turn from these destructive behaviors. I got plenty of time to follow you. Jesus, isn't there more important work you want to be engaged in, like, I don't know, world hunger, world peace, than invading my heart and changing my life. So what is Jesus asking of us in this text? What is he asking of us in this text? Our older son, Jonathan, runs cross country. This is a new sport for me. And, and so I'm just understanding how meets work. And, and we are just at one uh, yesterday where all the high school students line up on this huge starting line. And, and facing this field. And the starter kind of stands in front of them, and they're facing, and they're leaning into the line, not crossing it, waiting for the gun to go off. And when that gun goes off, they run. I mean, they run fast. Nobody hears the gun and says, is now the time to go? Should I stretch some more? Should I check to see if my laces are, are tied the way I want them? Is my chip on? Do I have my bib on correctly? When the gun goes off, they run. I liken this gun going off to the call of Christ in our life. When we hear that still small voice speak to us, it's like a gun going off, telling us now is the time. Not tomorrow, not next week to get things right, Not in the future to trust God, but right now to follow Jesus. Because Lord knows we need the kingdom of God to come now. And in God's strange, dynamic, absurd plan to put the world to rights, God includes you and me to be a part of it to enter and receive this kingdom of God. Lord knows our communities. Lord knows our world. Lord knows our lives need this kingdom now, not tomorrow. And the only way that it comes, says Jesus, is when the people of God enter and receive it now, ready to go. Friends, we've hit the two-minute warning of this sermon series. And as the game clock is winding down, let's review some of these salient themes from Luke 9 that have guided our reflection over the past three weeks. First, discipleship calls us to walk a road toward those who suffer. It calls us to walk a road toward the brokenhearted, toward the poor and the oppressed. Discipleship calls us to befriend and advocate for the homeless. Discipleship calls us to travel a restless road that will make us tired. If we actually do the things that Jesus asks us to do, then we will be tired. But discipleship, as we learned today, is also an urgent affair. It's not something we wait for. There's no time to waste. We're called to follow now. I assume at this point in the series that Luke 9, if it has taught us anything, it has taught us this. Discipleship is hard. Part of the motivation to do this little series came during the summertime, and I'm not going to go into the details of that which I observed, but it had seemed to me in this one stretch, one period of time, that Christianity was being painted in such a way as to say that this is easy. As if you become a friend of God or if you bear the name of Christ, everything is fine. There's really nothing to it. It's almost like second nature. But when you read Luke 9, what you discover is that it is not second nature. It's not in our DNA. It's a gift, a gift of life, a gift of new life that we embrace. Discipleship is not simple. If it is simple, let me suggest that it's not discipleship. If it's easy, it's probably not Christianity. If it doesn't cost us anything, it's probably not Christian faith. If it doesn't change us, it's probably not the road Jesus walks. And yet, with all of that in mind, there's still one more encounter we have to consider. And it may be in this third and final encounter where we just throw up our hands and say, can anybody do such things? Right? Jesus encounters this person who says, I will follow you, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. The word farewell, it's very soft. It's a very soft translation. It literally means rebuke or forsake. Let me forsake or rebuke those in my home. Jesus says to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, also in the original Greek, this idea for home, it's much bigger than sort of the domicile that we reside in. The, The Greek word is oikos. It's the word we get economics from. And oikos includes everything. It's like your household. It's everything that defines who you are. It's not just your kin. It's not just your people. It's your livelihood. It's your possessions. It's your good family name. It is everything that you think is valuable in this world. It's everything. And what Jesus is saying is that you cannot look back at that oikos, at that household, to define who you are. Because I'm going to do that. I'm going to define you as a beloved child of the living God, and I have a purpose for your life. I said this discipleship thing is difficult. Jesus, are you saying... That unless we renounce the most important and meaningful relationships in our lives, we can't come after you? Are are you saying that we have to reject our livelihood, which makes our household actually run? Are you saying that we have to renounce our histories and our family name? Are you saying that we have to renounce all of our possessions? Is that what you are saying? And the answer is yes, but not in the way you might think. What he's asking, more than anything, is that his love would define you, It's that his way of being human would define you. And when that happens in somebody's life, they begin to look at their kin, and they look at their family name, and they look at their possessions, and they look at their work. They look at their friendships. They look at their school. They look at their opportunities all as a place where the kingdom of God can come. When Jesus Christ is first in your life, those things don't become less important. They're fused with new meaning to understand that these places of our lives, each and every one of us, these places are gifts and opportunities for our faith to be lived out Friends, I don't know what you've been told about the Christian life, but let me say this. It is not easy. It's a struggle. It's a battle. Sometimes it is a war. It's an opportunity to know who we are in the very core of our being as beloved children of God and calls us along life's road, to live as if it is so. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, teach us the cost of discipleship. Dare us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to actually live what we say we believe not just to trust in the doctrines of our faith, but to actually enact and to do what Jesus taught us to do. To love you, to love one another, and to love ourselves. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, we pray, and all of God's people say, Amen. God does give us the grace we need to journey on, to follow Christ, to emulate His ethics, His worldview, His peacemaking, His love, His justice, and His mercy. If we bear His name, that means we seek to follow Him. We're not going to always get it right. We know that for sure. But His grace continues to encourage us to move toward Him and to move toward those He loves. And now may the peace of this same Christ be with you this very hour. This peace that surpasses all understanding. May it guard your hearts and your minds and live inside of you this day and every day ahead.